Testing. 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 One, two, three. Oh, you mad. You mad. You mad, impulsive fool. Darn. So ghostly, so beautiful, haunting. Over and over and over. Yum. It's like nothing in the world. Clogging. Aspects of dandiacal decadence. Slander. I do anything to get it back. <laughs> Perform a world. Yum. Perform a world. Yum. Totally. Totally. Totally thrilled. Let's just do it. Guess what? It's Andy's Treasure Trove, episode one. Hi, I'm Andy Moore. Thanks very much for joining me for the second episode of Andy's Treasure Trove. The first episode was the sneak preview episode, episode zero. So this is episode one, and I really want to thank all of you listeners who took the time to write to me with your praise, criticism, and general feedback after episode zero. And thanks so much for sending the link to andystreasuretrove.com to your friends and associates. I really appreciate your help in spreading the word about this show. Today's episode will include an interview with Don Bacardi, artist and longtime partner of British author Christopher Isherwood, along with the co-directors of a new documentary called Chris and Don, A Love Story, about Bacardi's and Isherwood's 30-year relationship. Then we'll hear a short story written and read by Philadelphia defense attorney Mike Carroll, an astrological forecast for September from Joanne Brazil, and we'll end the episode with a lovely piece of music written by Antonio Vivaldi and performed by the Ernest Block Bellringers, recorded a couple of weeks ago during a visit to the Mendonoma Coast, north of San Francisco. But first, some big news. After this episode, I'm going to be trying, that is trying, to produce a new episode of Andy's Treasure Trove every week. So please allow a little time in your busy schedule each week for about a half hour of what I hope you'll find to be scintillating conversation, music, and fun audio adventures. And don't forget, you don't have to sit at your computer to listen. You can make, or ask a computer-savvy friend to make, a CD of this show with a computer. Or you can copy the show to your iPod and listen anywhere. If you've subscribed to this podcast via iTunes, every episode will be delivered to you automatically. Now let's get right into the first segment. You're probably familiar with Christopher Isherwood, the British expatriate author of The Berlin Stories, which later became the movie Cabaret. After Isherwood moved to Los Angeles to do some script writing for the film industry, he met Don Bacardi, then 18 at the time. Isherwood was 49. And it began a 30-year relationship, which is lovingly detailed in the new documentary film Chris and Don, A Love Story. Don Bacardi is a celebrated American portrait artist whose portrait of ex-governor Jerry Brown is the most unusual gubernatorial portrait in the Gallery of Governors in our state's capital in Sacramento. Take a look at it next time you're in the neighborhood. But now, come along with me to the Hotel Rex in downtown San Francisco, a hotel that I've actually stayed at a couple times and like very much, by the way where, as part of my privileges as a member of the media at the recent San Francisco International LGBT Film Festival, I was allowed 15 minutes with Don Bacardi, Tina Mascara, and Guido Santi for a short interview. I'm Guido Santi, and I'm the co-director, co-producer, and co-editor of Chris and Donna Love Story, which is the film that chronicles the 30 years relationship between Don Bacardi and Christopher Isherwood. And I'm Tina Mascara, and I am the co-director of the film, and um, here I am. (laughs) And I'm Don Bacardi, 
described him by one interviewer of the film as the undeniable star. And uh, that was a great pleasure to read. It was the reviewer who said I was its star, not I. Oh. I'm just quoting him. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> now, how was Dawn as a subject for your portrait? I think Dawn is probably the most fascinating person I've met. And um, to be able to have had the um, honor to work with him for the past four years, for me, has been just like the top. Um, he's completely candid. He's honest. He's interesting. He's so articulate. He has these amazing stories. He's so um, current. You know, he has these great stories of the past, but yet he lives his life so fully. Every day, you know, he he does something interesting. He works really, really hard. He's dedicated to everybody he meets. He's he gives a hundred percent all the time, and that is the absolute truth about this man. He gives one hundred percent all the time. I don't know how he does it, but he does it. Tina, dear, you're making me blush. <laughs> well, um, uh, you and Guido um, made it such fun for me. Um, um, I would never have been as candid with um, anybody else as I was with the two of you because um, uh, I love being with you and, and uh, um, uh, I could relax with you. And uh, um, yes, it was really... Uh, such a pleasure for me, and still is. And we had also the, 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 the help and the support of uh, another great uh, uh, friend, uh, uh, James White, who is also uh, the, um, the producer on the film and is also the executive director of the Christopher Isherwood Foundation, which su fully supported the project. And the Christopher Isherwood Foundation actually allowed us to you know, uh, now is uh, is based at the Huntington Library in Pasadena, right? Yes. In San Marino, so they allowed us to consult the unpub all the all the material we wanted to 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 research on on, on Christopher Isherwood was uh, uh, you know they opened the door for us and that helped us a lot because we had to do a lot of reading, do a lot of preparation. You know, uh, as you know, in the documentary we bring alive Christopher Isherwood's voice by uh, means of the diaries. And Don, I mean, the, there are part of the diaries that are published, part are unpublished, but Don always said, whatever you need to do, if you need, whatever you need to consult or read, you're welcome. And, and, and that made things much more uh, easy for us. And, and then we had, naturally, we asked uh, um, Michael York, uh, who graciously agreed to, to, to read some of the passages. But because we didn't want to to make it a traditional documentary, even if we, it's traditional in certain ways, but we wanted to make it a personal memoir, uh, some sort of recollection of a story through um, Don. Don is very much uh, the protagonist, and, but you know, thanks to Michael York, we were also able to, to bring some of the intimacy to, uh, that, you know, of the relationship as, as, as Chris wrote in, in, in uh, recorded by Chris in the diaries. And we should also say about uh, Jim White, who's um, uh, the uh, producer of the film, um, that he's also a distinguished novelist, so he was, uh, he's been moonlighting as a producer, but um, he's published several novels and had great praise for, for them, especially uh, one called uh, Birdsong, another called The Persian Oven, uh, one called California Exit. He's um, uh, and that's how I met Jim because 
uh, Chris, who had always been hoping to uh, 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 be sent a manuscript by a young writer that he could really admire, Jim sent him his first book, Birdsong, and Chris was crazy about it. Jim came out to California immediately to meet Chris, and uh, we've been friends ever since, and that was um, um, uh, 35 years ago. And I didn't realize when I started what a big chance I was taking. It could have been a, a disaster from my point of view. David Hockney uh, was asked uh, by a filmmaker to, um, would he allow a film about him, and he did, and the film was made, and David saw it for the first time, and he went to his lawyer. He was so horrified that he considered a, a suit to keep the film from being shown. And um, uh, uh, his friends then went to see the uh, film and said, David, relax, it's not nearly as bad as you think it is. <laughs> and so David did relax. The film came out and it was a big success. Mm -hmm. But his first reaction was to stop it if he possibly could when, once he'd seen it. Well, one of your co-stars was Christopher Isherwood, but mm. another co-star is your artwork. And can we talk about your artwork? Did you start out drawing or painting? I started out um, doing drawings uh, uh, at um, three and four with Crayolas and uh, graduated to pencil uh, and um, uh, eventually ink and then to um, uh, painting portraits. Um, and always, even at three and four, my pictures were of people. Uh, in those days, they were either uh, invented out of my head or copied from magazine pictures, usually of um, movie actors. What would be the main difference between something you'd create from your head versus from a real person or a picture? Uh, well, according to me, the difference would be between um, uh, being interesting and uninteresting. Um, uh, as soon as I got the experience of drawing from life, and uh, Chris was uh, uh, my first uh, live sitter, and uh, it was he who suggested that uh, I try working from life, so um, uh, once I started working from life, I couldn't do it any other way because um, uh, it's so much more exciting and it's so much more difficult. Uh, but uh, that's uh, the source of everything of interest to me is the actual live person himself or herself. Uh, that's where all the interest and energy is. Do you get more satisfaction from making the art or after it's finished and looking at it when it's done? Oh, making it, of course. Um, um, uh, yes, nothing is, is as exciting as the experience itself. And having the license to look in a way that I would never dare to look at anybody under any other circumstances. Uh, I sometimes feel that I've invented myself as an artist in order to have an excuse to look in that kind of way that, um, uh, as I say, I would ne never dare to look uh, um, uh, in any other situation. It's too intrusive. It's what um, uh, Virginia Woolf said in her diary. She couldn't bear being painted. Um, I 
Uh, I don't remember if she named the portrait artist who was painting her, but she hated being peered at, she said. Uh, uh, and yes, it is intrusive, and um, uh, I sometimes uh, uh, shudder uh, um, uh, at the uh, uh, intrusiveness of it. So I have to cloak myself as an artist in order to, to uh, get away with it. Is it true that Chris sat for you more than any other model? Oh, yes, I did hundreds and hundreds. Uh, I've never counted. There must be thousands of drawings and, and uh, paintings uh, of him by me. Even if I live another 50 years, I, I don't think I could ever do as many portraits of anybody else. And uh, so uh, uh, it, it became a real challenge to find in him some... Uh, aspect, uh, finding myself some different uh, approach to uh, drawing or painting him. And that made it exciting. Can you give me an example of a change of approach like that? Um, oh, just um, drawing from a different angle. Uh, I had a phase of uh, doing uh, uh, heads of people uh, with their uh, uh, faces turned almost away from me. Uh, Chris, uh, um, uh, I think, would have been totally identifiable from the back of his head. He was that uh, distinctive. But um, uh, a lot of people, if you turn them to an extreme angle, they are no longer uh, identifiable. Chris was always identifiable. And challenges of of different lighting. Um, uh, Well... um, uh, the last drawings I did of him, um, he was often so sick that um, uh, he was lying down in bed and moving a great deal. Uh, that makes it very, very difficult to to um, uh, to work, and I had to uh, uh, step up my speed uh, enormously. Some some of those last drawings I did of him were done in um, uh, ten minutes, five minutes. Um, uh, uh, and uh, that's um, a big, big challenge. It must have been a, a real educational process to have the same model for so long and to keep trying to find different ways of, of approaching it. Yes, and um, uh, uh, I don't think many people would have um, uh, uh, been as interesting as Chris was. Uh, uh, I can't imagine anybody else who would be as, as fascinating a subject as he was for so many years. I guess he had to be patient, too. Uh, and he was very patient. Um, yes, poor man. Uh, 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 I think he spoiled me uh, with his indulgence, but uh, he was a wonderful sitter. Uh, I think I probably took advantage of him uh, too often, but um, yes, he was very good. Well, I know that you also had a lot of celebrity sitters because you two were involved in the Hollywood scene. Well, one of the most significant, of course, uh, was uh, Betty Davis, uh, who was my uh, first movie star favorite. Um, I was four when Jezebel came out, and already I knew who Betty Davis was. And um, um, uh, I drew her repeatedly over the years in... uh, 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 from all kinds of magazine pictures of her and her various roles. And to actually have the woman sitting for me in the flesh, 
I can't tell you uh, 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 what it was like. It was just extraordinary. It was like uh, coming full circle, drawing her when I was a child and, and uh, confronting her in her own house in Connecticut. And then to have her cook dinner for me when we were finished. Boy. I read a long time ago that Chris hated your driving and had to lie down in the back seat whenever you went somewhere. Is that, is that the real story? Uh, well, um, um, uh, if he were in the passenger seat, he learned very soon not to, to complain of his driving, but um, um, whatever I would make a swift turn, for instance, um, I would see his feet uh, uh, on the floorboard uh, uh, embracing him. And so um, finally... Um, uh, we had the idea uh, that Chris um, uh, not only got into the back seat, but uh, that he should lie down, and he did. And um, uh, it was a huge success. We did it forever after, because he would have um, a view of the uh, trees, looking into the trees, or uh, uh, high buildings, um, uh, the sky, and um, we would uh, talk the whole time. Uh, we were in the car together, and I would often pull up at um, uh, a red light, and waiting for the red light, we'd be talking as we had been. I'd turn to the next car and see the people staring in, thinking I must be a madman, talking and gesturing to myself. And, uh, of course, Chris was lying down invisible to them in the back seat. I don't know about you, but I love that image of them driving around town like that. And Tina was correct when she spoke about Don Bacardi. He seems like a very warm and dynamic person, as well as a wonderful artist. It was really fun talking to them. It was a bit odd because I had only 15 minutes with them, and I was shoehorned in between two other interviewers, and so it was sort of like a production line. Not easy to relax, but still we had a good time. Now let's listen to a short story by defense attorney and writer Mike Carroll, who works primarily on housing and other human rights issues in Philadelphia. The story is entitled The Bench Warrant. I thought that a few years at the public defender had steeled me against the suspicion and cynicism of the players in the criminal justice system. The cops, judges, defense lawyers, and prosecutors, even the young prosecutors, sometimes the most cynical of all. So when I learned that my client had died, shot during some street corner business dispute, I should not have been shocked when the players reacted the way they did. The hearing began simply enough. The case was called by the blazer-clad court staffer, and I pushed through the swinging gates and took my place on the side farthest from the jury box, the uh, defense side. I released my grip on the handle of my briefcase, and I let it drop to the floor. I flopped the yellow pad and pen on the table, tapped the metal mesh microphone with my finger, and started to tell the judge about the unfortunate circumstances that prevented the defendant from appearing in court that day, and every day to come, for that matter. I handed up a blurry Xerox copy of a newspaper clipping about the shooting and then sat down. The prosecutor stood up too slowly for a man still in his 20s, identified himself for the record, and started to speak. I could not quite make out his words, which began in a mumble. Some level of my brain may have declined to process them. He leaned his bulk forward and rested his fingertips on the polished table. His lips were moving, and some team effort of my ears and eyes deciphered the words, Bench warrant. The prosecutor fought with the dark gray suit he was stuffed into and struggled to release more words. 
Your Honor, he continued, speeding up as he gathered courage and volume. Your Honor, he repeated, I would request the issuance of a bench warrant for the defendant, for the arrest of the defendant for failure to appear today in response to subpoena. There was a quiet moment. I stared through the prosecutor, not quite believing, but felt myself drifting into a detached public defender state and beginning the survival drill that ran something like, Don't throw up, act normal, don't show it, stay on your feet, and keep going because the absurd is too often the norm. So what if they want to arrest a dead man? He doesn't care because after all he's dead, why should I? Then I heard the low rumble that was beginning to roll down from the heights of the bench. Actually more a growing growl than rumble. What, Counselor? What was your request? You want a bench warrant? You'd like a bench warrant? Then came the explosion. He's dead! He's dead, the judge wailed as long, thin lines of white hair escaped whatever substance had held them in check and became airborne. He told you how he died. He told you when he died. He's dead. The man's dead. Off flew his glasses, and without apparent need for breath, the judge continued. Uniformed court officers began to stir, and the court reporter retreated into a half-crouch while continuing to strike the keys of his machine. Lawyers in the spectator benches straightened up from hunching over file folders. I'm not going to issue a bench warrant for a dead man, his honor sputtered. He's dead. The man's dead. Now get out of here, he shouted as he leaned far forward in a challenge to gravity. Get out of my courtroom, he spat. Get out now. Go. There it was. A small victory for humanity or maybe for the humanity of one small-time drug dealer whose life ended too soon for him to consider... Consider what he might be losing. Ended before spending some lousy time lying on a prison bed staring at a painted cinder block walls. Maybe staring long enough to figure out whether a shit job on the outside with somebody to come home to and sleep beside through the night could be better. Prison, where he might circle the yard enough times to clear some of the fog from his head and consider whether time spent with a whiny kid might sometimes seem like competition to whatever he was sliding into. Now he was gone, and his only memorial could be his name painted on the back window of a friend's Toyota or Chevy, or spray-painted black on some dirt-brown brick neighborhood wall, a memorial that might survive a gray snow city winter or two. Then there would be only family memories stubbornly held by a mother or a sister, and maybe a couple photos clutched by an old girlfriend. Some judge who he could never have seen as anything beyond crazy old and white, through rage, contrariness, or sharpening sense of mortality, had stood up for him, stood by blocking the final and perverse indignity of being arrested while dead. We'll be chatting with Mike Carroll about his work and his writing, and he'll be reading more of his stories on a future episode. Now let's find out from Joanne Brazil what astrology has to say about September 2008. For September, September is always, always starts out in, with the sun and the sign of Virgo. And Virgo is health, work, and the details of life. It's a ruled by the planet Mercury, which is a planet of thought. And in Virgo, it's thought applied to practical situations. That's what it is ideally. So when the sun is in Virgo, it means there's extra vitality or energy or warmth for analyzing situations, for 
particularly applied to work situations and health situations. People are supposed to be thinking about, well, what's the better way to get this done or what should be done? How could I do it better? What's this actual situation that I'm working on? But people who don't do the analysis tend to go into becoming fascinated by small physical details. So you can get into, like, um, your fingernails, knitting, uh, any kind of fine detail work. Uh, people who are good, have good Virgo energy, are good with, have the patience to deal with a computer more than other people. So every year at the end of August, around August 22nd or 23rd, we start Virgo season. Then you get into September, and we're firmly into Virgo. So we're firmly, like, supposed to be doing our health routines, going to work, and also labor issues tend to come up, labor management. This year is different because the sun is in Virgo, but Mercury, Venus, and Mars in September are all in Libra. Libra follows Virgo, and it's about relationships. So the way the zodiac is set up, planets go through Virgo, and ideally what we're supposed to do is analyze our problems and solve them and do do our work and catch up on details and give ourselves a manicure or go get one or something. And then we're all ready to have relationships. We're all we're healthy and we've got a job and we're doing our job and all the kind of essentials of life, the essential responsibilities are taken care of. So then we can start to have relationships and maybe have a little fun. And Libra is very social. Uh, Virgo is tends to be more about just working and working alone if need be. Libra can't function unless there's another person to deal with. So it's about partnering. It's about justice and fairness. So this September looks like a really beautiful month to me, a nice combination of people being able to take care of practical things in their lives and also have fun with each other. Libra loves balance and it loves to be attractive so other people will will like it. Libra doesn't want to be alone, so it will put on some makeup or get dressed or something to try to attract a mate, or it might be very uh, socially conscious about justice and fairness and be doing some work. This is more the Mars and Libra, doing work and taking active steps to try to make life fairer, and lawyers would tend to be very busy uh, this September, and as we get to the bot to to the bottom later in September, the sun goes into Libra on the 23rd, and right around that time we have a retrograde Mercury. That means we rethink things. With Mercury and Libra, we're going to be rethinking our relationships. So what I think is, my little Virgo analysis, we go through September fairly merrily with things being like really nicely balanced and pretty, pretty beautiful. September is great for anyone in the arts. You get towards the end of September, and it's like, oh, wait a minute, I better, I have to think about this again. And it's still pleasant, but it's after we get past the 23rd, then Venus moves out of Libra and goes into Scorpio, and Scorpio is about private secrets. Then you have to get deeper. Otherwise, we run the risk of just going around trying to be pretty so people will like us. <laughs> so... After Libra is Scorpio, we have to get deeper, and we have to make deals. So there's, it's not just a pretty face, but you also have to have the pretty bank account. And so there's depth and value, and what do you have to offer in a deal? So money and power tends to come in. 
Here's, here's another general thing about September. All the beautiful Libra energy in September corresponds really well with the planet Neptune in Aquarius, and that's group ideals and group dreams. Thanks very much, Joanne, and happy birthday to you. And to all of you, thanks again for listening. Please subscribe and listen every week if you can. And please tell everyone about this show and andystreasuretrove.com. I'll be putting up some new photos and videos on the website this week and hopefully talking to you again next week. Bye for now. And here for your pleasure, the Ernest Block bell ringers with variations on a theme. Enjoy. Rights Reserved by Andy Moore and Treasure Trove Productions.